It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show Welcome to a wonderful show called The Rock Show. And today we got episode 147. We're almost going to reach 150 soon. And uh, we got Rocker Mike. And today we are talking about a Queens band called The Fresh Tones. Yeah. Rob, how are you today? Good? Pretty good, man. Yeah. Right. Yeah, good. Yeah, The Flesh Tones. Um, This was a fan requested show. Okay. The first of four. We're going to do two in January and two in March. And uh, I'd like to just give a shout-out to Michael Sawaya, who is a good friend on Facebook, nice guy. Um, and he suggested this. And it's one of these uh, – well, you know, you met Mike that time at uh, at St. Patrick's Day a couple years ago when, when he came down. Oh, yeah. um, everybody, uh, happy New Year. Yes, Happy New, happy New Year. Year. First show back. Into oh, 2022, man. can't yeah. believe we made it through another another COVID year. 2021 yeah. is over. Yeah. Thank God. Let's hope things get better. But this is the the first of four fan requested shows, so I want to thank everybody that that put in requests. Uh, I considered everything. Uh, I went through what I thought was the best of them, and some of them that I thought were really good, I may revisit later in the year and just you know tag them on as a regular rock show. So anyway, the Flesh Tones was Michael Sawaya's request, so shout out to him. Um, they're one of these bands that have been around for 45 years, okay? They got their start at CBGB's uh, in the mid-70s, about 76. And they're really a, a story of, of determination and, and, and uh, really just persevering. And, and it's amazing because they never really made it. No. They, they came close a couple of times in the 80s. Uh, I'll explain what they were involved with. But uh, they were also kind of never really accepted in the CBGB scene. Um, they were they came kind of on they the heels. Really, they weren't really punk. They were no. rock and roll. They were like a garage rock band. Okay? Like, exactly. like, like, the 60s, yes. like a 60s garage rock band. Yeah. But... You know, I mean, they had elements of punk in them. They, they the reason they started was because of the Ramones, Ramon. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, but you know, they they took it to a little a little bit more of a uh, traditional rock and roll party band, yes. you know, kind of thing. But they had a little twist to them, uh, which which I always thought was cool. A little sometimes a little bit of a horror vibe, a little bit of a Cramps vibe to them. Cramps, one of my all time favorite bands, and and these guys played with them many times they were good friends with poison ivy and, and lux yes. um and uh you know they they lasted they've lasted all these years they, they've had a few lineup changes um but they've persevered and they've had such to be honest with you they were probably one of the uh, the bands that I've ever, I've ever heard of that had so many problems with record labels Okay, just one record label after another folding. Yeah, they, they went as soon as they would sign them. Label. 
yeah. And, and that that is that's part of the reason probably why they never quite made it. When they were on IRS, yeah. uh, that label, that was when they had a shot. But anyway, we want to get into it. Yeah, that's good. The, the first label was Restar Records, and that went under quick. Yeah, well, that was Marty Marty Thau's label. Okay, now yeah. uh, the Flesh Tones were formed in, like I said, 1976 in Whitestone, Queens. Okay, Whitestone is a nice, quiet little neighborhood under the Whitestone Bridge in northern Queens. Uh, the band was started by Keith Streng, who's a uh, New York City native guy, and also Jan Marek Pokulski. Okay, now he was originally from Lewiston, Maine. These two guys were roommates, and they but rented that a house. Totally Polish. Oh, you couldn't get any more. I figured he was from Greenpoint, but but he was from Maine. But uh, yeah, so the, these two guys were roommates, and they rented a house in Whitestone, and which in those days was probably very cheap to do. And they happened to discover in the basement that there was some instruments down there left by somebody who was a prior tenant or something. Okay. And uh, there was a guitar, there was a bass, all right? And nothing fancy, but they, these were good instruments. And Streng, uh, who could play a little guitar, you know, started playing the guitar that they found. And Pakulski played the bass. And they wanted to start a band. They decided to start a band because they were interested in what was going on down on the Lower East Side at CBGB's in those days, the Ramones, Blondie, Television, all those bands they were into. And they said, you know, we love rock and roll. And, you know, we can't play like Led Zeppelin, but we might be able to play like the Ramones. So let's start a band. Okay. Start a band. Yeah. Now, they were soon joined by two guys in the neighborhood, Pete Zaremba, who uh, was on vocals. He could play keyboards and harmonica. He plays a wicked harmonica. Okay. And Lenny Calderon was on drums. Two neighborhood guys that just they knew. And they kind of just took them in to start this band. Now. After several practices and they started playing house parties, the Flesh Tones decided, well, now it's time to play CBGBs. So on May 19th, 1976, which is interesting because May 19th is Joey Ramone's birthday, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they still celebrate it even, even now at, at clubs. Um, the band became a regular act at CBGBs after this. Uh, they started off on an audition night. Hilly Crystal, the owner, said, okay, we'll give you, like, the third slot on a Monday night. You know, they didn't get, like, a headlining, but they started to become a regular. And uh, But the, the, the strange thing is, is they never really fit in. Um, another band that never really fit in but was playing around in those days was the Cramps. Uh, they were kind of not taken seriously. And I think the Flesh Tones kind of fell into that category they you know they were mostly new york guys um yeah, definitely new york guys. yeah and and uh the cramps really weren't but they were living here for a while and they just you know they didn't fit in with that 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 legs mcneil punk rock magazine you know the please kill me book you know kind of click you know, nothing yeah. wrong with them. I mean, that was a very, that was really the hugest part about CBs in those days. Um, but, but you know, the Flesh Tones were one of these acts that if you go back and you you look at old flyers, old handbills that were written up, uh, they're on like every fucking gig. 
they're yeah, like they're yeah they're everywhere like uh, you know opening for the ramones opening for blondie not you know like yeah third on the third on the bill or something you know what i mean uh opening for television uh playing yeah. with the cramps eventually uh you know it's like wow these guys always are out there you know they were with so many groups it's incredible yeah yeah now um the, after like i said they weren't really accepted so what they kind of did is they decided to branch out a little bit and play Max's Kansas City as well. Now, in those days, there was a bit of a rivalry between the two clubs, Max's Kansas City and Seabees. There weren't too many bands that played both. uh, And if they did, they generally played one a lot more than the other. Uh, The Ramones will always be known as the CBGB's band. Uh, Television, CBGB's band. Uh, but they did play Max's at times. But the Flesh Tones kind of really played both places. You know, they, they really were one of the few that played pretty much equally, maybe sometimes even more at Max's because they ended up – what they liked about Max's is is the people would actually dance, you know, a little bit, okay? And, 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 and they thought of themselves as kind of this 60s garage rock, uh, even a little bit of an injection of soul music uh, into into their sound uh, after their like maybe you know first or second year they kind of did that. Um, they were big soul music fans. I mean, I know that when Zaremba, you know, was was at home or they would do house parties, there would be soul music playing, things like that. He liked a lot of that stuff. And actually, just as a side note, he's on. Little Steven's Underground Garage channel on Sirius. He has his own show, Pizza Rambo. Um, do, is, do, you, do you remember that Club uh, 57? Club 57 on St. Mark's. Yeah, very vaguely. Uh, I, I don't think I was ever in there. Were you? No, but it's, it's like a halfway house now. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 57 St. Mark's, right? Yeah, it's like, but yeah. it's like some kind of halfway house now. Cause yeah, I walk by it every day. I, and I just, and then when I was reading that about Club Fifty Seven, I was like, Jesus Christ, man, how long was that? Well, you had Club Eighty Two also over there. Mm-hmm. But that, that was on another block. That was on the next block. Yeah. 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 Fifty Seven is on the the north side of the street there, close to Second Avenue, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, man, when I would see that because. Uh, because a lot of people remember, there used to be on Coney Island High. Coney Island High came later, but yeah, but that was that was at St. Yeah. Mark's, closer to Third Avenue, between yeah. uh, between Second and Third. But I mean, look in those in these days, in the seventies, the eighties, even into the early nineties, there were lots of these like little places. Yeah, you know, definitely. They have a a stage; it could hold two hundred people in there or something, and that's it, or even less. Yeah. So, um. You know, they, they started kind of playing Max's, CB's, both places. And by being regulars at both of these clubs, it goes back to what I was saying before. They really got on a lot of cool bills. Okay. They played in a lot of gigs. You can go back and look at old flyers of Max's and CBGB's. And, and they played with a lot of popular bands, underground bands at the time. Now, by 1978, uh, the Flesh Stones were regularly on stage with um, a combo called the Action Combo. It was two brothers, yeah. Gordon and Brian Spaeth. And Gordon played alto sax, 
and Brian played harmonica. Okay. So this kind of gave the band a fuller sound. They could get that soul sound that they wanted a little bit at times. Um, and at the same time, they were becoming known as like the ultimate party band. All right. Wherever they played, like you never quite knew what would happen on stage. All right. And in wow. the show. Yeah, they, they were they were exciting. They they were quirky in a crampsy, even a you know, I mean I'm even gonna go so far to say is quirky almost in a B fifty twos kind of way. Yeah. Okay. That not as corny, not as corny, but but definitely like whatever little bit of pop influence they had kind of went in that direction. But um Club fifty seven, as you mentioned, on St. Mark's was a spot yeah. they played a lot. Irving Plaza, when they were opening for bands, they played Even there. And Satiria, exactly, yeah. Um, and and a lot of other venues. Now, when Maxwell's you know, at home, I think Maxwell's still there. Uh, I think it's not. I think it's gone. I haven't been there in about fifteen years. I think it's gone. I think I think it's just not a book. I think it's still at Maxwell, but I think it's somewhere else in in um. In, uh, I gotta look. That, I got. I gotta look that up. I saw a lot of great bands at Maxwell's. Maxwell's was was a spot that I would go to every couple of months just for the hell of it, even if nobody I knew was playing, because it was good to kind of like get out of the city for a night, you know. Well, so I got a little history. So Maxwell closed on Maxwell closed on July thirty first, two thousand and thirteen. Yeah, and that, that was Maxwell. eight years ago. Yeah. Open as Maxwell Tavern under new management. Less than four years there, they closed again. Yeah. I think it became just a bar, maybe, and they didn't have bands anymore. Yeah, that's what it yeah. became a bar. Yeah. Yeah. If you remember, Continental did that too. They stopped having bands for, for quite a few years and then just closed. Um, Maxwell's, when, they, when it opened, I think, uh, in the 70s, late 70s, they, they, one of the first bands I think ever played was the Flesh Tones. They, they, they were asked to play Maxwell's a lot. And, um, I seen them there actually at Maxwell's too. Um, now they also would, they also would even go so far as play the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. They went down there a lot. They were popular there. Um, in 77, the, the, the Flesh Tones started sharing a rehearsal space with the Cramps. They became good yeah. friends with them. Um, Miriam Lina, who was the ex drummer to the Cramps, uh, she was in the A Bones. She started Norton Records. Miriam is an amazing person. Uh, she's done so much for underground music; it's it's amazing. Um, she was an early fan of the Flesh Tones and kind of did what she could, you know, to push them along. And uh, they all became good friends. Now, yeah. you mentioned Red Star Records, and yeah. And that was Marty Thau's label. Marty Thau was the ex-New York Dolls manager who yeah. started this band, and he signed acts like Suicide okay, to his label uh, and the Flesh Tones, several others. Um, they, they recorded an album right away, but it, it got kind of shelved and didn't come out. But after about um, a year, 1979 or so, they released a single off it called American Beat, and that was the first Flesh Tone single ever. Yeah. Um, also at that time, there was a filmmaker named M. Henry Jones. He was an underground filmmaker. He did this kind of like animated 
partially animated, partially live uh, video clips of them. Okay. And uh, it was called Soul City. And it was kind of interesting. Um, it's almost like, uh, I don't know what you call this kind of filmmaking, but it's, it's like it's like cutouts. Okay. And in it's the, almost in, like, aha, take on me, but I'm, not 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 drawn not drawn that was more drawn okay this is more like they filmed they filmed it and they they used film but they used special light exposure on them and it gave them like a green background or you know whatever and then they would cut out their figures and place them kind of and then also color them differently so they looked almost they looked almost cartoonish yeah, that was very yeah. good. But I still think that that's where I got the idea from. Oh, maybe, that was, maybe. I mean, that, you know, that whatever you think of that song is one thing, but the video is cool. Yeah. You know, the video is cool. The video is cool, but I think that that was pretty much the first time he showed that thing, like animation like that. on In a, a, in a rock video, yeah. And that and, probably and, and, came inspiration to a lot of me, even Sledgehammer, all that stuff later on that came out. That was right, Sledgehammer big, was like all stop motion action, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the '80s, they they there were some cool, you know, videos. Even despite yeah. the song sucking, but sometimes the video was cool. <laughs> yeah, Sledgehammer, I can't listen to that shit, man. I'm sorry, man, but you know. But anyway, um, so in 1980, Red Star Records, who had signed the Flesh Tones, the Su- Suicide, Alan Vegas Band, uh, the Real Kids from Boston. Um, they were having financial issues with this label, and uh, they still had not released the Flesh Tones album. It still was yeah, held back. So what would happen eventually is uh, Raw Records, or Reach Out International Records, would eventually release it as an album called Blast Off. Uh, and in those days, in 80, um, Raw Records was, uh, was cassette only. Do you remember them? Yeah, I remember you that. Know, remember Tower Records used to have the, the raw records rack? Yeah, that's... Okay, yeah, and, see, and they were always underground music and stuff. I used to buy a lot from that. I still have a handful of cassettes from that rack. Um, but uh, it was called Blast Off, and it was released on cassette, and then a few years later it came out on CD and eventually even vinyl. Yeah. Um, but the band at that point now was really without a label, which was a a situation they would find themselves in a lot. But there was a lot of buzz around the Flesh Tones, and and Miles Copeland from IRS Records would soon sign them, and they would soon work with producers Richard Mazda and Richard Goddard. Okay, Richard Goddard from the Strange Loves, the 60s yeah. band. Uh, it was also at this time that drummer Lenny Calderon decided to leave the band, and he got replaced by a guy named Bill Milheiser. Now, they would make an appearance um, in the British punk new wave film Erg, A Music War. All right. Yeah. And very cool movie that was featured, featured a lot of punk new wave acts of the time. Uh, the Cramps are on it. Joan Jett is on it. They had X. a little bit of everywhere. What's that? Who's who's of music? Yeah, X is is part of it. The Los Angeles punk band Devo is on it. Uh, the Dead Kennedys, and I think if I remember right, a very early appearance of the Go Go's, I think, are on it too. Now, um, and they also released from uh, from uh, that record label IRS an EP called Up Front, 
and that came out in 1980 and four albums would follow now this this would be their kind of their peak okay where they really had a chance to make it never quite happened but these four albums were uh, an album called roman gods that came out in 82 an album called hexbreaker which is one of my personal favorites that came out in 83 uh and then they came out interestingly with two live albums back to back in 85 speed connection and speed connection 2 okay and uh in 82 those are, those are very good albums yeah no i mean if you're gonna buy anything by the flesh tones you want those four okay yeah. i think it's i think it pretty much encompasses what they're about but then again I, I i did hear part of their album from last year and i'll go into that at the end and and it's not bad i hadn't heard it and uh just in doing the research on the show i listened to some of it. it's pretty good um in 82 they appeared on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. And in 84, they re-recorded -re American Beat. And it was part of the Bachelor Party soundtrack. <laughs> the Tom Hanks movie. Remember that movie? Yeah, that was a great movie, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a funny story where the band uh, was invited to the premiere of that oh, movie. Yeah. And uh, they went, and I think it was like, Two guys like fell asleep during the show. <laughs> during the show, and one of them, like the guy, like Tom Hanks, was sitting behind him. <laughs> and so, oh my God. <laughs> well, Bachelor uh, Party is not a great movie, man. It's it's nah. like you know, just typical eighties cheesy comedy, you know. But that that was at a time when Hanks was was big on bosom buddies and all that. Remember? Yeah. You know? So, um. The IRS years, like I said, are considered the most the peak time for that band. But it was really also their most commercial. Um, yeah, but, but, my, but they, they, they also, for them to be on American Bandstand, they made like a little splash. You weren't just invited to American Bandstand. No, no, no. It's it, they, The IRS uh, was run by Miles Copeland. Miles Copeland was, was the brother of Stuart Copeland from the police. Okay. <laughs> So he had a lot of he had a lot of pull, especially in the early '80s when his brother was doing very well on the charts. So yeah. it was kind of like you know they'd help each other out. A lot of IRS bands that that really probably if they'd been on other labels wouldn't have gone anywhere. You know they actually had a little bit about them because of just being on that Copeland run, you know, label. So. Um, <clears throat> Roman Gods, that album when it came out, it debuted at 174 on the Billboard charts, which gave them a little bit of a buzz. It would be their it would be their highest chart position until 2020, when that new album had come out. Uh, Pete yeah, Zaremba, incredible, yeah. Uh, many years later, then. Well, it just well, you know why? Uh, it goes to show how rock and roll is really not in the public conscience. So if something does come out, it's kind of like a big, it can be a bigger deal in a way because they're on, they're on these charts that there aren't that many acts like that anymore. Not to yeah, take yeah, away yeah. from the flesh tones. I mean, they deserve it. You know, I think they debuted at nine or something like that on that new album. Um, wow. But, but uh, the highest they had done in the height of the, if you think about all the, new wave bands punk bands that they were kind of competing with 
uh, at the time in the early eighties, it, it, you know, to get at 174 was kind of an accomplishment, I would say. So Zaremba actually, I don't know if you remember this. Um, he, he hosted something called IRS records presents the cutting edge. This was a show on MTV that was on for a couple of years. Um, I remember it. It was kind of like a precursor to 120 minutes. That's that's okay. pretty much what it was. Yeah, and, and, and I'll be I'll be honest with you. I if 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 my memory serves me right, I I, I would say it was it was better than 120 minutes because it they played obviously the IRS bands and there was a lot of decent bands on that label. A lot of them, you know, had videos and MTV didn't really play them. Okay, but when this show was on, they would get played. But they also promoted other bands, and it was a little bit of a like the show, a little than the title, "Cutting Edge," where 120 yeah. minutes kind of got like a little light, you know. They yeah. but eventually, but but "Cutting Edge" Zaremba hosted this. Uh, it was all up and coming artists at the time. That's so, what it was, and it was on Sunday night, just like 120 minutes. I, it so, might have been. It might. It might have been right. It was on late, I think. Yeah, it was late. It was like 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock maybe midnight o'clock yeah i don't remember shows. yeah but it yeah was, it was about the same as it was pretty much 120 minutes before there was 120 minutes yeah and there yeah. was now, a lot of new band or uh, breakout artists or people to watch same format pretty much they just changed the name exactly exactly um pete saremba because of his you know hosting this show in the 90s he he could continue on uh, hosting other things, and there was something in the you might remember in the in the New York City underground live scene. Uh, there was the Cave Stomp shows. Yeah. Okay, the Cave Stomp Garage Rock shows. Now I was very into this, and he used to MC some of these shows, and it was very cool. Okay, because he he's a he's a funny guy. He's got a great sense of humor, but he's yeah. he's very knowledgeable. And I don't know how much he was involved with booking the bands, but but. The Cave Stomp shows had the most amazing shit. You'd have like old '60s garage rock bands mixed in with new bands, so it was yeah, very cool. You know, yeah. they would play. God, there was wherever they could. There was there was clubs on the west side, clubs on the east side. They played. You know, it was everywhere. Now, by the like a weird kind of festival. Then I yeah. think it turned into that. It turned into that CD something. They called it something else later on. But no, that's it. No, CMJ. CMJ. You thinking of? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's what the evolution started with. These they were cave, and then uh, when they so CMJ. CMJ was a national thing. Okay, CMJ yeah. was like you'd have the CMJ week, and it yeah. would be a highlight of underground bands, but it was going on in other cities as well. Cave okay. Stomp was like strictly in New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was the idea of, of, of promoting underground bands. So in that sense, you're right. They would go all over the place. There would be different. It was just like the CJs. Like they would go everywhere else also. Like you would go one week, you go to like right. this, this venue. Then the following yes. day there was another band and yes. it's pretty much the same format. I just, it, it was like the, it, it was like the Santa con of, of, uh, yeah. underground music. <laughs> it went to different, music different places. Went to different yeah. places. Yeah. yeah. You're right. You're right. That's, and, and not every not every club welcomed the CMJ, but if you no. did, I think you got, you know, there was perks to do it. I think, and it, it, you know, there would be a lot of journalists would be following them around to write about yeah. music and you know write about these bands. But anyway, um, by the mid '80s, IRS would 
would go out of business. They would start to have financial problems too. And the Flesh Tones would find themselves without a label again. Now, at this point, the band was kind of regularly playing the Pyramid Lounge over on Avenue A. And um, they were also very instrumental in starting Wigstock. Yep. The very first Wigstock. And Wigstock in New York City was a annual event for a lot of years. Uh, had to be they had to be close to twenty years they did this, right? Yeah. I think. Um, I think they to do it again, but it hasn't been like the original one, you know? Like No, it's not it, as it, it, it's it's not as I don't know, it's not as good. Yeah. Well Wigstock was, you know, promoted underground bands, but it was also a lot of like drag queens and yeah. You know, it was like everybody you'd see at the Mermaid Parade kind of thing. Yes. You know, yes. things like that. And I, I went to a couple of them because there was some good bands playing. You know, they would have Wigstock, I think, in, I'm trying to remember now, where was it? They had it in Union Square one time, right? Oh, they more than had once. It by the Piers. Like some of the Piers. By the Piers. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, one time they had it in Brooklyn too. It was like, it was like different places. Uh, yeah. Every every year they would do a different place. But um, now, even without a label, the band kept on touring in America and Europe, especially because in Europe they were like very big. Uh, some shows in those years included bills with Chuck Berry, James Brown. And in 87, 1987, they were featured on the very last episode of Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes on MTV which was the seed for what became 120 minutes. Okay. Right after that was when they started with the 120 minutes show in 87. Uh, they were asked to record the title track for the campy horror movie. I was a teenage zombie. Okay. That a great movie. That, it is, it is a great movie. It's just about these teenage kids in high school. And they, you know, it, there's like a, you know, one guy gets thrown into the Hudson river and the Hudson River is supposedly so polluted, it's turning people into zombies. And they just, they just, a guy comes out, he's all green, he's like killing people and shit. Eating oh, it's people. great. It's great. Yeah. It's so and then, he's and then, so bad that it's great. Well, the first guy to go in the river is like the local drug dealer. He's like this like Puerto Rican guy with like a big hat, right? And he's got like a vest on and everything. And he falls and he comes out. He's all green. He's got a big like, you know, he has like a Juan Epstein fro under his hat and a big mustache. It's <laughs> fucking great. It's great. So cheesy. So it is. I, I, so have that, I have that movie somewhere. I, I do have that movie. I own it. Um, Now, that movie, you know, it, it didn't really go anywhere, but they did do the the soundtrack to it. So they released a final studio studio album on IRS in 1987 called Flesh Tones vs. Reality. And then they released also uh, a live album in 89 called Soul Madrid. And their final release on IRS would be a compilation uh, best of called Living Legends. And that came out in 89. Original member and bass player Pakulski decided to leave the band. Now, this was in late 86 and he got replaced by Burke Warren, uh, Robert Burke Warren until 1988 when he would leave uh, and get replaced. I'm sorry. uh, In 88, he would, he would leave. And then between 88 and 90, they would have kind of like a revolving door of, of, of base. 
Fred Smith, formerly of television, Andy yeah. Chernoff from the Dictators. The Dictators and the Flesh Tones were very good friends. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Handsome Dick Manitoba has always called them the ultimate party band. Uh, you know, uh, he had them play one of their later record release. Uh, when they were releasing an album, they had a record release party at Manitoba's. That was like about maybe 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, he's always promoted them very, very highly. Now, in 1990, Toronto native Ken Fox was brought in on bass. And Pete Zaremba loves this guy. Okay, He loves that he's in the band. Uh, he, he credits him for giving the band the stamina to continue on. He's a younger guy. Okay, he's a few years younger than them. Um, and basically he says that, you know, it's his enthusiasm to play that keeps the band going. Okay, especially with the live wow. show. Yeah. So in 1992, the Flesh Tones signed with Ichiban Records. Okay, and that lasted about four years uh, until, uh, you know, Ichiban would go down as well. Okay. It's amazing how many of these records they will go down. It's amazing. Well, you know, sometimes they they these labels, you know, even if you're doing well, they can't they can't push you like you should be pushed. You know, they just don't have the funds. You know, through independent labels, it's difficult. So um it was during the time with Ichiban that they recorded the albums with Dave Faulkner of the Hoodoo Gurus. Peter Buck from R.E.M. produced an album for them. Uh, Steve Albini from Big Black, uh, he produced an album for them. Um, these were called... Uh, very good producers. Yeah, no, they, very good. yeah, I mean, pa Power Stance, Beautiful Light, and Laboratory of Sound. These were the ones recorded by those guys. Wow. Um, they were always very well respected as a band. Other bands liked them. They liked okay. to play with them. You know, they, they were cool. So uh, it was natural that that people would be, you know, happy to produce a record. REM's Peter Buck was always kind of a cool guy. You know, he he would be he'd have his ear to what was going on in the underground scene. You know, yeah, so definitely. at the turn of the century, the Flesh Tones collaborated with uh, musician producers Rick Miller, Jim Diamond from Detroit, uh, Lenny Kay, formerly the Patti Smith Group, Ivan Julian. Okay, uh, they also self-produced some albums at Paul Johnson's compact, uh, compactor basement studio. That's in, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. right? Yep. Uh, they would eventually sign to Yep Rock Records. That would be in two thousand three, and they've stayed with that label to the present date. Okay, they've yep. been with them for nineteen years. It seems to have worked, um, and really. What it comes down to is the, the, the label's founder, his name was Tor Hansen. Before he had the label, he was a fan of the Flesh Tones. Oh, so that's and, good. And he always, he, he made a promise to himself that if he ever started the record label, he would sign these guys right away. And he did. Wow. And he did. So the Flesh Tones were also one of the last bands to ever play at Windows of the World at the World you Trade Center. I didn't even know that. I didn't even realize that until I read I that. I didn't know about that gig. That was in 2001. Uh, yeah, I didn't know about that gig, how they got that. Um, but Windows of the World Pretty occasionally had bands. They did. Yeah. Um, it's kind of forgotten, but they did. 
I, I, I couldn't remember ever seeing a band there. You know, you want to. I don't know. I, I don't think. Out, I don't so. think I ever did. I went there to eat a couple of times, but that was they. They did have, have like a special event. It might have been something. Special probably event. was. They say, Let's get the fresh tones. You know. Pro probably was. So, um, they also in two thousand two after the nine eleven attacks when there were a lot of memorials and stuff going on, they played the commemoration for nine eleven at CB's called the Night of Remembrance and Hope Festival. Yeah. Now, the following year, in December of 2003, the band played the 30th anniversary of CBGB's, 1973 to 2003. Uh, that was a, a, a gig they did with the Dictators, a band they played with quite a bit. Um, in August of 2004, they were part of the Little Stevens Underground Garage Festival on Randall's Island. I remember that very well. Wow, it was 39 it was other bands. 40 <laughs> bands all together, 12-hour show. 13 hours or so, I was standing. Well, I went with George Figueroa. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the headlining bands that night were the Strokes, the New York Dolls, uh, the reformed New York Dolls, and, and then the reformed Stooges as well, Iggy Pop. Uh, great gig. Now, another guy that was on that gig was Bo Diddley. That was the last time I got to see him. Wow. Um, but, you know, the Chesterfield Kings were at that show. Nancy Sinatra played that show, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, the Ravenettes. God, like I said, like 40 acts. One of the best shows I ever seen. But just yeah, so this I had, another who's who's. Um, it was a who's who. Yeah. And, and, and director Christopher Columbus, interestingly, had filmed that show. Okay. And it was supposed to come out as a concert movie, but it never did. It just wow. never. I don't know what, what happened. I have a bootleg of it. Okay, of his footage, and you know, I think it it's not fully the whole show, but it's it's a lot of it. It's a good two three hours of it. And Give uh, it to Peter Jackson, he'll fix it. Peter Jackson should yeah, he should do a documentary <laughs> on it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so um, over the next seventeen years, they you know would release several more albums on Yep Rock. Uh, they toured China for the first time. Okay, yeah, and they had a book written about them called Sweat, the Story of the Flesh Tones, an American Garage Band. It was written by Joe Bonomo, and in 2009, they released a documentary based on that book, and it's called Pardon Us for Living, But the Graveyard is Full. Okay, <laughs> the Story of the Flesh Tones. Great movie. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime for about $5 if you want to buy it. Uh, watch it. It's cheaper to rent it. Uh, great movie, hour-long documentary about the band. Um, in 2020, they recorded their latest studio album called The Face of the Screaming Werewolf, and it debuted at number nine on Billboard's alternative charts, and that's their Amazing. highest ever. Yeah. Okay. So they are set to be on tour. Um, they did some final shows for 2021. Um, nothing in the New York area, I don't believe. I believe they played Pennsylvania and a few other places. Uh, but they do have a tour scheduled for the spring of 2022. So we will see some flesh tones around. I'm going to try to catch them again because it was kind of like listening to them again and researching the show. It kind of reminded me how great they were. And everybody on that group, even now, even with the replacement, half of those guys are original members, you know? 
Pretty much. The band is the original member. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, and 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 you know, Zaremba is really the the heart and soul. He's a great front man. You know, they're they're all they're all good. The musicians are great. You know, it, it's just a fun show, and you can see them generally in small places. So it's cool. Mike, you know what's so funny? The the the, the newest member was uh, <laughs> joined the band in 1990. <laughs> Look, Ken Ken, Ken Fox. Fox. Well, Ken Ken yeah. Fox was it 1990? Yeah. 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 Oh, he's already with them 30 fucking years already. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it just shows how old they are. You know, and how old we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. I was like, when I looked at it, I say, wow. Yeah. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of years with the same band. And, and they've still got the original uh, guitarist and the original lead singer. So yep. Yep. Not a bad show. Not a no, bad show. The great, great writing combination between Strang and, and, and him and Zaremba. Yep. So. That's all I got for you today. The Flesh Tones, Rob. Mike, thank you for another wonderful episode of The Rock Show. This is episode 147, and it's 2022. And I'd like to wish everybody a happy new year and a happy new year to you, Mike, and uh, all the viewers. Um, also, so, Mike, if they need to read you, uh, read you or ask you any questions, um, how can they get to you? Okay, I'm on all the social media spots. Uh, Instagram, I'm RockerMike212, RockerMike212. If you want to find me on Facebook, I'm RockoMike, RockoMike. And also we have the Rock Show Podcast group page on Facebook. Check that out. I'm on Clout Hub and MeWe as RockerMike. And pretty soon we're going to jump over to Truth Social when that comes out. Yeah. I hope. That'd be pretty good. That'd be pretty good. And yeah. to everybody else, remember, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. See you next week. Take care, people. The only podcast you will hear Get lumped up on the rock show.